Um, there are a few things that I want to talk about today, and one of them, we, we discussed a little bit yesterday, and then we're going to jump into some new stuff, which is, which is this notion of um, uh, saras. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a spiritual malady. Uh, it's, it's translated as, as leprosy in English, but um, all the commentators say that it's, it's not the leprosy that we, that we know of today. This is a unique disease that no longer exists in the world anymore. And um, it was a physical manifestation of a spiritual uh, sickness. And um, the basis of it was speaking Lashonhara, which means uh, the incorrect use of speech would maybe be the, the, uh, a good working translation of it. So that means um, saying bad things about other people or whatever it is, gossiping, repeating things, something that a lot of people don't know, and it's a little bit counterintuitive, is that when you think of Lashon Hara, which literally translated would be the evil tongue or the bad tongue, it suggests that one couldn't possibly be speaking the truth while saying Lashon Hara. And yet, the reality is, is according to Jewish law, one can repeat something that's 100% true, and it's still Lashon Hara. In other words, there might be something going on, and it's, it's, it's accurate. This is accurate. It's not a question of opinion or not. It, it is the case. And yet, even something like that may be something that one ought not to repeat. Depends on the situation. But, 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 but um, don't think that Lashon Hara is only if you lie about someone. That's not the case. That's not the case. And, you know, one of the... You know, in terms of the, the level of sensitivity that a person has to have, one, one of the categories that always uh, amazes me, and I think is very beautiful, really, and when I first heard it, it sounded like very um, restrictive and almost like, it's too much, it's too much. But the more I've observed this phenomena, because it's, the, it's one of the most innocent forms of Lush and Hara. Let me just say it like that. In other words, the person who violates Lush and Hara in this way absolutely, I would say 99.9% of the time, isn't trying to do anything wrong, okay? We'd have to be like a really twisted person who is, does this with evil intent, okay? And yet it's called Russian heart. So let me tell you what the thing is, right? You have two people standing next to each other, for instance. Could be more than two people standing next to each other. Um, and you publicly compliment one of the people on, say, an article of clothing that they're wearing. Okay? Now, did you mean anything bad by that at all? You said, oh, what a beautiful scarf, or that's a nice tie, something like that. So why is that Lushen Horitz? It's, it's actually in the category of Lushen Horitz. Why? Because everyone else who hears goes, what's wrong with my tie? They don't, they don't verbalize it, but they think, what's wrong with my scarf? Right? So this is... This is, again, when you first hear it, or I'll speak for myself, when I first heard it, I was like, oh my goodness, you're going <laughs> to, this is a level of spiritual imperfection to say something nice to someone? I mean, come on, you know, I mean, give me a break already. Where do we draw the line? And yet, and yet, again, it, it's something beautiful, actually, because the Chachamim, the sages, have probed the depths of the human mind and, and, and human emotion to the point where 
they know that it injures another person to be left out. People feel left out. I know one of the things that, um, when I was growing up, one of the, just one of the points of, just like, it was like hitting me in the stomach with a sledgehammer, you know, when I was in junior high school and, and high school, would be to stand there and someone invites someone else to a party that they're having while I'm standing there and I'm not invited. I mean, that was just like, that just wiped me out, you know? And I think that this is just another version of that. It's a much more subtle, innocent version of it, for sure. But anything that induces the sensation to someone else of being left out is, is painful. Is painful. And this is something that that, um, that again, that when you approach it from, the, from that standpoint, that then you start to see the, the beauty of something like that. And then you start to appreciate the beauty that we have um, speech itself being guarded at all in the rigorous way that we do. Um, it was pointed out, I, I, I wish I could tell you by which rabbi, I'm, I'm not positive, but made a very, in a way, a very simple observation, but very amazing observation, which is that, that only Judaism of all the religions of the world have anything close to the, to the type of halachas that we have for guarding your tongue. You know, if you look, there's a, um, a beautiful book by Rabbi Pliskin, it's called Guard Your Tongue, which translates um, the laws as brought down by the Chofetz Chaim of, um, of guarding your tongue into a, an English book. If you, if, you, if you look through it, and it's really worthwhile to get, although they're actually fairly complicated, and it's best to learn with a rabbi if you can, because, because you, you won't fully understand it, I think, if you just read it in the English. Nonetheless, if you, if you get that book, you realize how phenomenally detailed the laws are. And, and, and if, you just, if you just take a moment to realize what that says about Jews and how the level of sensitivity that we're called upon to have in general, you realize that's a very beautiful thing. Let me put it in a slightly different way. It says that, um, that Moshe Rabbeinu, when he, was, um, when, when he was told to get Yehoshua, Joshua, to be his successor, so Joshua is going to take over the Jewish people. So, so it says, Moshe Rabbeinu called to him. And the, the commentators say, what does that mean he called to him? That he called to him in, um, in sort of a, 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 a beseeching language. And then they go into more detail. Well, what does that mean exactly? And it says that Moshe Rabbeinu told Yehoshua the level of reward that, that Hashem has for the leaders of the Jewish people. So now all of a sudden you go, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. We all know that the most spiritually dedicated people are just doing it for Hashem alone. They're not doing it for the sake of the reward. And now you're talking about to the, the successor of Moshe Rabbeinu right now? That, 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 that in a way, Moshe would even in, insult Yehoshua by, by telling him that you should take this job because of the tremendous reward you're going to get? I mean, it all seems haywire, right? And yet, the way it was explained, I, I believe by Reb... Yeruchim of um, Mir, is that, no, 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 you have to understand it in the following way. Why does Hashem give reward for, for something? 
Because that thing that was done is very precious to Hashem. That's why he gives reward. So if he gives great reward for something, that's an indication of how extremely precious that thing is to Hashem. So when Moshe Rabbeinu said to Yehoshua, there's great reward for this, it wasn't telling him that you should take the job because Hashem is going to give you a lot of prizes and goodies. He was telling him, no, do you know how incredibly precious this job is to Hashem? That's why you should do it, because you're going to be able to give Hashem so much pleasure by doing it. So, so now, with that in mind, let's revisit the, the intricacies of Lashem Hara and, 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 and the laws behind it. If it's so detailed, and if it's so intricate, that's a sign of how beloved pure, proper speech is to Hashem. Um, so now, let's go further with this. So, one of the aspects of um, refining one's speech, purifying one's speech, is, is something in the Chumash. It says that, um, you know, you have different categories of, of uh, saras, and it's a, a, a nega. A nega is, is this word for a blemish. And it can appear on the walls of a person's house. It can appear on a person's clothing. It can appear on a person's body. So you see it's incrementally getting closer to a person. And, um, and so, uh, so the word itself is very beautiful. Nega, it's, um, it's, it's three letters, and it, lend, it ends with the letter ayin. And ayin is an interesting word in Hebrew, because ayin is a letter in the Torah, and ayin is also... Um, a word in Hebrew which means the eye. So this word nega, which means blemish, ends in ayin. And the sages teach that if you move the ayin from the end of the word and move it to the beginning of the word, in other words, if you move your eye from the end of the word, which means blemish, to the beginning of the word, it spells a different word, which is oneg, which is bliss. So in other words, how you see something is going to determine whether it's a blemish or whether it's something very beautiful to you, what your perspective is. So we call this in modern psychology framing or reframing. In other words, sometimes we say, okay, so this is my situation. I've got calluses on my feet and it hurts for me to walk. Or you can say, I've got legs! <laughs> Holy smokes! I am so happy to have legs right now! You know, so that, that would be a, a very basic form of, of reframe, you know? Um, so, so again, where you're putting your eye, the ion, it's either nega, it's either a blemish, or if you move the ion, if you move your eye and see it in a different way, it can be oneg, it can be bliss. I'll give you an example of this. And I wasn't playing games. I wasn't consciously trying to reframe. Um, but it was, in retrospect, a, a, perhaps a reframing. But, but again, I, I experienced it in the, in the following way. I was, um, we had bought a house, um, and it was a fixer-upper. And uh, we, we didn't hire a contractor. We, we, we didn't know what we were doing. And the house sort of sat there in its 
misery for for a year, and every once in a while we'd try to call someone or we'd try to do something to get us to be able to move into this place, and it was like there was this, this force field around the house that that resisted any any home improvement, and and there were, you know, at one point we even put. We knew that we had to paint the house. It definitely needed a paint job. And there were sort of like five uh, swatches of paint that had been put on at one point. I mean, this was months and months and months and months period of time I'm talking. And I, I found out later on that the neighbors played a game. They would stand in front of the house and they'd look at the various swatches of color and go, well, you know, maybe that's the one, you know, and they'd think of it in that way. Finally, we found someone who was absolutely not a contractor. He was a, 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 a handyman. And he came in, and he was doing some kind of minor work, and we said, hey, can you just fix this house, you know? You know, which meant, like, knocking down walls and doing plumbing and, and wiring and, and all sorts of things. I mean, you needed an overhaul. And he was like, yeah, I'll do that for you, sure. Now, okay, that turned into its own story, <laughs> I mean, it already sounds like a bad idea, but at us, at that point, we were so uh, out of ways to figure out how to try to fix this house, or even to get the process started, that we just leapt at this opportunity to, to book this guy. So he came in. So, so here's the point of the story. I walked in one day, and there were walls that had been knocked down, and there was plaster all over the place. And in walking in, my clothes were covered with white dust. And I looked at this wrecked house. And I said, it's beautiful. And what was beautiful to me, I mean, you'd think, well, he's crazy. I mean, this place has been turned into like, it looks like a war zone right now. But what was beautiful to me was the fact that it was so clear that work was finally being done. That that it was on its way to getting fixed, even if it actually looked more broken now than it ever looked, it was clear that it was being broken because it was on the road to actually being fixed. And so sometimes in our own lives, we get ourselves into a situation, you know, and we feel like we're stuck, like, what am I doing at that place? I never decided, I, I never thought I'd be at that place, right? But if, if, if that's the stop on the road to getting fixed, then that's a beautiful place to be. That's where you want to be. Because that means the work is being done. You know? So that's, that's a great thing. That's a great thing. So again, that's like you're looking at the ruin. You're looking at the ruin, and it's nega. It looks like a blemish. But, you know, you look at it a slightly different way. It's oneg. It's bliss. It's like, all right. All right. At least we're on the road to getting something done. Okay, so now, it says in the Chumash that if a person sees this um, nega, this, this blemish, right, on the wall of their house, they should go to the Kohen. There's an interesting process with Kahanim in general. When does the fixing kick in? Okay, when one brings a sacrifice, the fixing, um, the kapara, the forgiveness, whatever it is, is realized when the Kohen eats the meat of the Corbin. Not when the animal is brought or when one enters or when it's sacrificed or when it's put on the Mizbeach, on the altar. When the Kohen eats the thing, then that's the conclusion of the process. Okay? Similarly, similarly, when does, when does one's um, 
sort of the spiritual impurity of tsaras kicks in. You can look, say, on your house, or, and you can be, the, the, the commentators even say you could be a Torah scholar, so that you know for sure that's tsaras, 100%. You know all the halachas, you know all the things, you know that's tsaras. But it doesn't become tsaras until the Kohen says tsaras. So, so again, it kicks in once, once, the ko, when, once it gets processed through the Kohen. Just something interesting to keep in mind. Okay, so now, let's say you're a Torah scholar. You know 100% that that's Saras. You go up to the Kohen, and the Chumash tells you the language you're supposed to use. And I found this very, very striking. The Chumash tells you that you should... The Chumash, meaning the Torah, obviously, tells you that um, you should say to the Kohen, something like Tsaras is on the walls of my house. So now that's peculiar, because we're talking about an instance where you know that it is Tsaras. You know it is this impurity that has to go through a whole process, you know, of getting rid of. So what does that mean something, you have to say something like Tsaras is on the walls of my house? So, so one of the commentators say, well, wait a second, again, just like we pointed out, if you said Tsaras is on the walls of my house, you'd actually have a little bit of a lie in that, because it's not Tsaras until the Kohen tells you it's Tsaras. And one shouldn't even have any imperfection in their speech, even the trace of a lie. Okay, that's, I hear that, that's, that's one point. Another commentator says, you know something? It's in order to condition humility in a person that, that they shouldn't always be so sure of themselves. You know what I mean? So you say something like Tsaras. Um, Tsaras <laughs> and Tsaras, yeah. It's probably the same root. I don't know. Tsaras um, means trouble. Um, so... So... That, that made me think of something uh, that we were sharing that's meaningful to me because I, I know I do it and I think a lot of, a lot of people do it. And it's, it's something that we should be sensitive to, I think, because it's just a pure form of, of being, basically. So what is that, what, what is that mistake I, people make, I think, all the time? and ideally we can uproot it from our speech, is offering opinions as facts. Offering opinions as facts. So oftentimes we, you know, we're constantly rendering judgments about everything around us. That's normal. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But how we express it is very, very important. So for instance, people will eat something and they'll go, oh, no, that... That food is bad. Broccoli is bad. Well, what they mean is, I don't like broccoli. <laughs> but they're presenting it as a fact. Broccoli is bad. Broccoli is not bad. You don't like broccoli? Mazel tov. But broccoli is not bad. You just don't like it. You know, that movie. Ah, oh, that movie stinks. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. What you mean to say is, I didn't care for that movie. However you want to express it. But people say things as hardcore facts when really they're just expressing an opinion. And that, there's a certain level of arrogance to that because it suggests, and again, 
a lot of times it's done in a very innocent way. So I don't want to overplay it. But nonetheless, if one is serious about transforming themselves and elevating themselves, little things like this, actually, you'd be amazed, you know? You'd be amazed at how they can transform a person when you become sensitive to them. Um, so, okay, so good. So now, I want to, I want to just mention two more things. Uh, which is just one of the most striking things that I heard from Reb Shlomo uh, about, about Lushan Hara in general, which just still kind of just pulls at my heart, just this definition of it. You know, Reb Shlomo was a master of so many different things. One of them was giving very precise, simple definitions for very, very large concepts. Um, for instance, I'll give, you, I'll give you three examples, okay? One is about um, idol worship. Idol worship in Hebrew is called avodah zorah. And now technically speaking, literally speaking, avodah zorah means strange worship. Okay? But Rav Shlomo translated avodah zorah, idol worship, as worshipping Hashem as though he's a stranger. And that's very, very, very deep. You have to think about that. But there's a, there's a huge amount that's been condensed into that, that one-line definition. Worshipping Hashem as though he's a stranger. Um, I'll give you another example where a mountain has been condensed into a, a, a teaspoon. Is, is jealousy. What is jealousy? So he says, jealousy is thinking that someone else has your portion. Again, there's, a, there's a, a huge amount in that. Jealousy is thinking someone else has your portion. You know, what, and it's not even necessarily a conscious thing. Someone, walks by, someone drives by in a Bentley. Part of you, again, on a deep sort of soul level, says, that's my Bentley. You know what? It's not your Bentley. It's his Bentley. <laughs> and you know what? Hashem doesn't have a shortage of Bentleys. <laughs> He wants to give you a Bentley and hasn't given you one. It's not because he doesn't have one to give you. It's because, for whatever reason, at this point in your life, you're not supposed to have one at this point in your life, for whatever reason. Okay? And it's certainly not because he took yours. Whatever it is. Fill in the blank. So, so again, jealousy being defined as thinking someone else has your portion. It's his portion. That's why he has it. You know? Okay, so now, leading up to the definition of Lushan Hara. Right? Like, what would you give to have that summed up in one of these one phrases? And it's more specifically coming to explain why it is that the person who speaks Lushan Hara has to be taken as part of this purification process to the outside of the camp. So, so, so Reb Shlomo says that the reason why the, you have to be isolated and put by yourself at one point during the process is because when one speaks Lashon Hara, one, one is saying to the, to, the, to the person who they're speaking it to that this person, the one that they're speaking Lashon Hara against, that you're trying to take away all that person's friends. 
that that person shouldn't have friends anymore. So, so you say back, well, so that's why that person has to be alone. See what it feels like not to have any friends. When, when, you, when you realize that that's not a, a nice thing, that that doesn't feel good, then you realize, okay, so then that's part of the fixing. I don't want to take another person's friends away from that person. You know? Okay. So, so I want to just um, switch gears for a moment. There's a, a Gomorrah that, that I was learning. It's in Mesechta uh, Shabbos. Uh, it's a Kuf Ches Ahmed Aleph 108A. And it's um, it's a uh, it's kind of funny because it sounds like an incredibly abstract Gomorrah. Okay? It's going to be coming like, wow, that's incredibly specific. But this is going to become very, very specific to all of us, and it's going to take us back to the Garden of Eden, but we have to, we have to work to get there. Okay? So stay with me. Here's the question. The Gomorrah asks, you ready? The Gomorrah asks, can one write um, the, the parchment of tefillin on the skin of a fish. Okay? Sounds like a, wow, that is incredibly <laughs> arcane. You know? I mean, normally speaking, you write it on a leather parchment, which is usually from a cow, right? So, so but can one write that, that parchment on the skin of a fish or not? Okay, so how is this ever going to, like, have anything to do with my, my life? Okay? But, but, but there's the flow of the discussion in the Gomorrah, I found very, very exciting. Okay, so, so we'll, we'll jump into it. The first thing that, that the Gomorrah points out is that, well, you, you ha- it has to be Hyde, H-I-D-E, in order to qualify to have um, the, the parchment written on it. So the, the first thing the Gomorrah wants to know is, is the skin of a fish considered Hyde or not? And they come up with an amazing proof that it is hide. Okay? Now, listen to this. One of the most complicated areas in all of halacha, like whenever the sages want to say, wow, that's incredibly difficult, they compare it to the laws of Tumas Mace inside of a tent. Okay? Tumas Mace is the impurity that, that emanates from a corpse, from a human corpse. Okay? Sometimes not a human corpse. corpse. Like it could be an animal's corpse or whatever it is. But when a person dies inside of a tent, some things become spiritually impure, some things don't, and that is really considered one of the most difficult areas of halakha. Okay, now, if you have a, a clay jar, okay, inside of a tent where someone died, the contents inside the clay jar do not become ritually impure from the dead body inside the tent. Okay? Now, another thing that blocks the spread of the spiritual impurity from a corpse is hide. Okay? Now, we know from the Gomorrah that the meat inside of a fish does not become spiritually impure if it's inside a tent when someone dies. Therefore, the skin of the fish must have the status of hide. And from this, the Gomorrah proves that fish skin is hide. Okay. We're, all, we're over the first milestone. 
So, so at this point, the skin of a fish is in the running still to have tefillin written on it, or the parchment inside of tefillin written on it, okay? The next thing that we have to know is that it has to be from a kosher animal, because the, the, the boxes, even though they're very, very hard, you think maybe they're made out of plastic or something like this, it's actually made out of leather, and it's just cured in a very, very, very hard way. So, so it, it feels uh, like wood or something like that. But it's not. It's animal skin. It's leather. It has to be from a kosher species. But it can also be a trefa or a nevela. All right, so let's put that aside for a moment. I'm going to explain what those terms mean in a moment. So the, the Gomorrah asks, how do we know that the tefillin can be, um, has to be from a kosher animal. And they quote a passage that says that, um, that the, the Torah should be in your mouth. Okay? So that phrase, the Torah should be in your mouth, indicates that, that the tefillin, or it hints at the fact that the tefillin has to come from something that could be in your mouth, meaning from a kosher species. Okay? Everyone with me? But it can also be a trefa or a nevela. Now, what are those categories? A nevela is, um, is an animal, let's say a cow, let's work with a cow, that died on its own. Now, you would think that since kosher slaughtering is the most merciful form because it's got to be done with an ultra-sharp knife, and if there's even a nick in the knife where the skin gets pulled a little bit, causing the animal a moment's discomfort, that animal is called not kosher. That wasn't a kosher slaughtering. It's got to just get the windpipe immediately, and then the animal doesn't feel any pain. It's, it's out, okay? So, so since the mercifulness of the killing is, is a priority, I would think, just speaking personally, that if an animal dies on its own and is just dead in a field, that that would be the most kosher animal, in a way, right? But it's not. It, it's, got to, it's got to be slaughtered in this very precise way in order for it to be kosher, okay? So an animal that dies on its own, that's called an avela, that's no good. Okay, now a trefa is an animal that they look inside after they've kosher slaughtered it, or perhaps they didn't slaughter it correctly, and they look inside and they see that there were holes in the lungs or whatever it is, that the animal was sick, and was heading toward death on its own before the kosher slaughter. So that's, 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 that complicates it as well. Okay, fine. So the main point that we have to bring from this is that tefillin has to be made out of a kosher animal. That's not trait for... No, it, but it can be trait, it can be trait, and it can be an available. Okay? So now, now, uh, now we get back to this question... Where, where someone asks, he says, he says, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Someone asks, why can it be, if, if you just said, if you just said that it's got to be something that I can eat, right? How can it be kosher if it's a trefa or a nevela? 
Because I can't eat a I can't eat trefer and avela. And you said that I know that the that the tefillin has to be made out of something that I can eat. What sense does that make? Okay. So the rabbi answers him back with a mushroom, with a with a parable, and he says the following thing. He says, he says, imagine there are there's a prisoner in a kingdom that needs to be executed. He says, now there are two people who could execute this prisoner. One is the chief executioner, who's the that's the normal process of rendering judgment. The other is the king himself could could execute the, the, the person. So the person saying over the parable, the sage saying over the parable says, I say that the person who the king himself executes is superior to the other one. Right? Because the king himself went out of his way in order to do it. So he says, in a like manner, something that's regularly kosher slaughtered, that's done by the chief executioner. That's done by a kosher butcher. But an animal who died on his own, Hashem himself, the king himself, took the life of that animal. And therefore, that animal is on a higher level. So the, the novella, it's even, it's even more special that his skin should be made into tefillin because the king himself, God himself, took his life. Okay, now listen to this. This is what we've been building up to. <laughs> Believe it or not. Actually, we're also going to get back to the skin of the fish. Let me just, well, I'm going to throw the flaw on this for a moment, so let's get back to this. So the person asks back. He says, well, he says, if you say, if you say that the trefa and the nevela are even superior to the regular kosher slaughtered animal, because Hashem himself took that animal. He said, can I eat trefa and nevela? Right? Because you just said it's superior. Does everyone follow? So, so, so the rabbi says back, no, you can't eat it. And he says, why not? And he says back, I, you know, I'd really like, if we had more time, I'd want to know what you think the answer would be, right? I'd, like, I'd, I'd, I'd be very curious to hear your response, because the response and his response to the response is really what I'm getting to. I said I was getting to it before, but this is really what I'm getting to. And then later on, it's going to be what I was really, really getting to. Just. <laughs> but anyway, he says... So then why can't I eat Trefa Nevela if you're saying that it's superior? And he says, because it says in the Torah, don't eat Trefa Nevela. <laughs> now, show of hands, who thinks the person who just got that question answered was satisfied with that answer? And who thinks the person was not satisfied with the answer? Who thinks he was satisfied with that answer? Who thinks he was not satisfied with that answer? Okay, so believe it or not, he loved the answer. He loved the answer. Now, 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 okay, that for now, we're going to get to the skin of the fish, God willing, if we don't, remind me. 
But, um, but I just want to say, now, let's make this very, very practical. Okay, because this, to me, let's atomize the flow of this Gomorrah for a moment, and I think that it's going to tell us something very important about our spiritual process and how we understand God in Torah and everything like this. So this is me talking now, just to keep your sources straight. Um, so just to, just to sort of like outline the flow of the Gomorrah. We began with a very sort of contradictory seeming set of halachas. You can make that, that, that the tefillin has to be made out of something kosher, but it could also be an availer or trefa. Seemingly a contradictory thing, since, since it's coming from a Pasuk saying that you have to be able to eat it. Seemingly contradictory. By the way, there's a very easy solution to that right from the outset, which is that it just means it has to come from a kosher species. Meaning that if it's a cow, it just has to be a cow. Okay, if the cow's an available, if the cow's a trefa, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. As long as it's a kosher cow, that's fine. So that answers all the questions right there, by the way. But, but obviously the Gomorrah knew that answer and could have done that, but they wanted to go down this particular line. So we start with this set of halakhas, which seems very, very contradictory. It's got to be a kosher animal that you can eat, and yet, it could also be a nevela or a trefa. Then we analyze the inner logic of that. And we come up with this parable about the executioner. And we, in an attempt to explain the seeming contradiction inside of this, we come up with a beautiful parallel, beautiful example, where we learn that in a certain respect, that the trefa, the nevela, is even superior to the normal kosher slaughtered animal. Okay? So we've come to explain the inner reasoning of this with this, with this metaphor. Now the person says, well, does that mean, therefore, that I can eat tripe? Based on what you're saying. So what he wants to do right now is to apply the reasoning behind a difficult Torah question to a new practical level, back down here. And the rabbi goes, no. You know what the answer to your question is? It says, don't eat trafe. So he brings him back down to a grounded place because the point is, is that in understanding the Torah, sometimes we can get so wrapped up in the explanations that we then use the explanation that we've arrived at as a jumping point for an incorrect action. I'll give you an example. Um, those uh, Jews who say that um, keeping kosher is no longer a mitzvah. All the mitzvahs are mitzvahs. The, the, the mitzvahs are mitzvahs forever. What is the the way they apply this logic, they say that, well, you know, strikingly they begin with, by complimenting the mitzvah, which I think is quite interesting. Well, 3,000 years ago, it was a very good law because it protected us from all sorts of, from all sorts of diseases. But today, we know better. We don't have those diseases. Therefore, we don't need it today. Therefore, Eat all the pork you like. So, 
do you see, do you, do you see how that's like a microcosm of what we just discussed? There's a difficulty. The person doesn't understand the laws of kashras. They come up with a reason for the law, an explanation for the law. Back then, we had these problems, and this law fixed it. But now, look how the reasoning kicks in. Since we don't have those problems today, now they're going to apply it to an action, eat pork, which the Torah specifically says, don't eat pork. We have to we have to walk this incredible tightrope in terms of our time in this world, in terms of our service to God, where God commands us to understand this world, to understand ourselves, to understand our responsibilities to each other and to God himself. And to internalize these things and to demand that we do it consciously and with purpose and yet at the same time to not make ourselves the final arbiter of whether something is true or not or whether something is right or not. We have to understand when all is said and done that when it's written a certain way, that that is the final word on a, on a particular subject. And then that involves an act of humility on our part, because it means that I'm not running the show. I'm not the final word. But that's, that's, that a person has to prize. A person has to prize that place in their life. Because ask yourself the question, if you were God, how messed up would this world be? <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, we've got our problems with the, with the way the world runs. But you know something? The sun still kind of runs its course and the stars aren't crashing into each other. You know, and when I... When I open up my refrigerator, a bear doesn't leap out. And start. <laughs> you know, if I were running the world, I'm sure there are many things that I would lose track of, to say the least. I mean, just to put it in a comedic way. You know, so let's just end with a, a story I saw um, from the Kutzkarebi. That kind of sums this up. Um, a, a big rabbi uh, came up to the Kutzker Rebbe and his, his, we should only know from Simchas, and this big rabbi had had a, a, a terrible tragedy in his life. His, his daughter had passed away, Lolin. And, uh, and the rabbi was completely, completely heartbroken and couldn't understand like why such a thing could happen, did happen. And he, he asked the Kutzker Rebbe, like, how, how, how do you explain this? How do you explain this? So what do you, what do you say to someone 
like that, right? What, 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 there's no answer, right? But we're not the Katskarebi, right? So the Katskarebi says back to him, you know, there's a certain Gomorrah, and he knew that this person was extremely learned. He says, there's a certain Gomorrah. He goes, and there's a problem in this Gomorrah. How do you explain this, this, this question in the Gomorrah? And so the rabbi jumps in, and he gives him an explanation to that problem. And the Kutzker Rebbe says, ah, but your, your explanation poses another problem. How do, you, how do you explain this if you say that? And the rabbi, again, was very, very learned, and he jumped in, and he said, well, Rashi ex- explains that, you know? And the Kutzker Rebbe asks a question on, on the Rashi. He says, yeah, but how do, you, how do you explain that question in the Rashi? And the rabbi, again, is very, very learned, and he jumps in and he goes, no, 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 Tosafos explains that. And then he goes, ah, but based on what you're saying, there's a problem in the Tosafos. And he asks him a question on the Tosafos. And he says, how do you explain that? And so the rabbi gives him an answer on that. And, 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 and the Kutzkarevi says back to him, he says, you know something? He says, if the Gomorrah is right, and Rashi is right, and Tosafos is right, surely Hashem is also right. And you don't know the answer why this happened to your life, in your life, but there is an answer, and surely Hashem is right too. Right? So, so it, it's, it's hard. It's hard. But when we remember, when we remember how big the world is, Right? And, you know, that you get into a bus, and the bus doesn't turn into a pigeon that flies away, and all of a sudden you've been digested by a bird. <laughs> right? I mean, that, there's, that this world, as much as we personally experience it as chaos, you don't know chaos. You don't know chaos, you know? People like to say, people like to say, oh, you know, it's random. Ah, uh, it's so random. Or, you know, people love to use that word. Random means that, that, this, that this safer turns into a giant baseball bat, right? <laughs> that then knocks off the moon, you know, into Venus, which, you know, turns all of the tides of the world into one huge wave that swamps the world, which turns us all into fish, and then, I mean, you can just go anywhere you want, where my hand turns into a microbe and then it turns into a statue. Yeah. That's, that's random. That's chaos. The world is mysterious. Life is mysterious. It's a whole different, whole different thing. But the great thing is, is that we have been given a map and a compass and a flashlight, and provisions. That's the Torah, that's the mitzvahs. And we've been given a way to get through this world. And Hashem should just bless us that, that we should have the humility to realize that, you know something, if I don't understand something, not to say it's wrong or it's bad, right? But to to find that place of peace and support where we can just sort of like exhale, catch our breath, get centered again, 
remember, if there's a world, that means there's a God. That's, that's very important for people to understand. If there's a world at all, that means that there's a God. Because, you know, the Gomorrah compares, makes a parallel between the soul and the body and God and the world. Okay? And they say there's a difference. When the soul leaves a human body, the body remains. But were God to leave the world, all of existence would be out like a light. Like turning out a light in a room. The world would disappear. So the fact that there's a world at all means that there's a God. And sometimes I know in my own personal life, sometimes it's hard to, you know, you get a question or you get depressed or you get sad or whatever it is, and then all of a sudden you're, you get what's called constricted consciousness. Your, your mind just like shrinks down. And you can't feel God. You can't. At those moments, remind yourself. You don't have to go through anything complex. Just remind yourself. The fact that there's a world at all, that I'm still here, that the world is still here, means that God is still here. Then exhale. And at that point, it might be a good time to take a nap. (laughs) (laughs) Or to put on some music, or whatever it is. But you get back on course. Okay, have a good week. (laughs) Oh, the fish, the fish. Okay, you guys want to hear about the fish? Okay, we can wrap it up. It's another five minutes, but the fish goes like this. Um, Believe it or not, the sages say, well, wait a second. Now, we determined, just to recap, the question is, can you write to fill in parchment on the skin of a fish? So we determined that it's high. Why is it high? Because it stops tumus mates the flow of spiritual impurity from a corpse, from entering into the, the thing itself, right? Okay? So we know that fish skin is, is hide. Okay? We got past that. But then the Gomorrah says, you know something? This question, it's very, very hard. We're not going to know the answer until Eliyahu Hanavi comes. So, wow. Why? It's that hard a question? And they say, yeah, it's that hard a question because... Because there's something called Zuhama. The Zuhama might stop it from being kosher. Now, Zuhama is a very interesting word. It literally means like a a stench, a bad smell. Okay? So they go, you know, because it's it's a fish and this, that, and the other thing, it's a dead fish, maybe it smells bad and that's not maybe kavadik. You know, it's not proper for, for, for the tefillin to be written on. And they, and they end the discussion there. Now, the Chedusha Erev and the Sfas Emes point out, I haven't had a chance to learn their thing, but, but they point out, wait a second, wait a second, no, 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 that can't, that can't be it. Zuhama, they could, they, you can smell the parchment, smell it, you know, if it smells bad, maybe you don't use it, if it doesn't smell, you can determine itself. You need Eliyahu to come and tell you whether it's got a bad smell or not? That doesn't make any sense. And it especially doesn't make any sense when you get a little bit deeper and you realize Zuhama is actually a Kabbalistic term um, which refers to the toxin that the snake put into the world after the sin of the eight Sadas eating from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. Okay? And um, especially in this book that I'm learning right now, 
Uh, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver uses it all the time, Zuhama, all the time, meaning the, what the snake put into the world. Aha, so now, now it becomes a very interesting discussion. Now let's rephrase the question. Did the toxin, the spiritual impurity that the snake put into the world, affect the fish or not? That now is going to be like, if, and only Eliyahu is going to be able to tell us. So now, that's, that thus ends the Gomorrah. Now I'm going to jump in and try to just give you a quick explanation of why yes, why no. Okay? Why no? Why the fish couldn't be used? Because the Zuhama knocked it out. And why you would have to use a kosher species like a cow? Because if you want to say that this Zuhama, this spiritual impurity sort of like permeated creation on some level. So when I kosher slaughter a cow, I sanctify it and I lift up the sparks inside of the cow and now its hide becomes spiritually elevated and now it would be able to, to be used for a sacrificial or a, um, a, a ritual purpose. Whereas a fish, a fish isn't kosher slaughtered. Right? You just kind of pull it out of the water it doesn't have that actual extra act of being elevated and sanctified. And so, therefore, maybe the Zuhama just stays in it, and you can't use it. That would be no to the fish. That would be the no to the fish side. What's the yes to the fish side? The yes to the fish side is that it doesn't need to be kosher slaughtered. Also, a very amazing thing about fish is that they weren't killed during the flood. All other species of animals were killed, and just small samples of all of them were saved by Noah and Hashem in the ark. But the fish themselves, when the floodwaters came, were all saved. So maybe there is this rectified element to the fish that they didn't need to be destroyed, and therefore they are worthy of having to fill and written on them. And the Zuhama didn't get to them on some level. Also, we know fish have certain great spiritual qualities, like they can't give a bad eye. There's no bad eye to the fish. There's no eyelid on fish. You know, so one of these symbols of like, you know, you have certain things that counteract a bad eye. Um, in terms of segulas, the most famous is like the red string or something like that. But also the sign of the fish is, is, is another thing that, that counteracts it because of this elevated spiritual quality to the fish. So, You've got both sides, and when Eliyahu comes, he'll tell us whether we can have fish to fill it. <laughs> Till then, have a good week. <laughs> okay, 1.30, Pan Pacific Park, there's a uh, Holocaust uh, memorial, uh, if anyone wants to come. Oh, he can't. Well, I can put you at a shortstop. Yeah.